Welcome into the Housing Hour with Kevin Ray, a locally produced program devoted to bringing you a fresh perspective on housing, diving into the issues that matter most. The Housing Hour with Kevin Ray is presented by Mortgage Investors Group. And now, Kevin Ray. Welcome into the Housing Hour. This is Kevin Ray. I am your host. I'm very excited to be here. I hope you are as well. I'm here with executive producer and co-host Mark Griffith. And we are excited to have you into the housing hour this very moment. And I want to tell you guys how to plug in with us. A couple of really important things. Number one, thehousinghour.com. That's the treasure trove of all of our information. The new and improved housing hour. Mark, how you liking the website? Oh, oh come on. Am I on now? <laughs> no, no, not yet. Number there. three, number three. Yes, yes. The new improved website. And Mark, it's great. It's great because we're able to put all of our shows in one place, all of our series and have everything under one umbrella. And it's easy to listen to. You click on it, it plays. It's wonderful. Yep. It's got a playlist on there. It just runs in the background. You can be doing whatever you want to do. You can be on Pinterest. You can be on any of that. Speaking of Pinterest and social media, we're also on the social media. You can go to facebook.com slash the housing hour, um, as well as Twitter at the housing hour. And you can find Mark right on Pinterest as well. Mark, you, you seem to dangle with antagonism whenever I say that. Oh, I, no, it's just a happy look I have. <laughs> so I don't know if our guest today is on <clears throat> Pinterest or not. Dr. Michael Simpson. Um, Dr. Simpson, are you on? I know I'll call you Mike in a minute, but officially, Dr. Michael Simpson, are you on Pinterest? I am not on Pinterest. So, oh, yeah, goodness. that's. You should be. That's you really all your, you know, travels and. Yes, yes. That would, that would be, a, that'd be a good thing for you me, just, Pinterest. Yeah. yeah. So Dr. Yeah. Simpson is our resident expert. He is the doctor in the house. He is just what the doctor ordered. He is the Dr. Pepper of radio. <laughs> he, he's done so many shows with, I don't know how many shows, 10 yeah, more, bunch, probably bunch. a lot more than that. Yeah. Um, but we've had him on several times to talk about a variety of things. Um, he is, uh, I guess, are you still a professor or do you still do teaching or are you still doing things like that as well? I, I do. In fact, I'm going to teach in the, in the spring. So. Awesome. And you also, one of your, and I was, I was trying to tell Monique, um, you know, I'm like, yeah, he, he, he knows nanoscience. Like I even know <laughs> what that is, but that's, that was one of your, um, that's one of your specialties. That's kind of one of your research pieces, right? That is, yeah. I can see yeah. you now. Okay. I'm at the, uh, at the Center for Nanophase Material Sciences at the Oak Ridge National Laboratory, mm-hmm. and uh, my work has been in bio nanosciences, so mm-hmm. small things that interface with living things. Small things that come in smaller packages, would that be fair to say? Fair enough, yeah. Okay, fair yeah. enough, fair enough. Mm-hmm. Now, um, today we're going to talk about something unrelated to nanoscience, but it, it does have more to do with the uh, United States, the history of our culture and and how we've really arrived to where we are today in terms of uh, our societal makeup, you know, what it is that we um, call our legislative branch and our, 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 you know, our, our branches of government have always been the same, but I think how that they, they sort of relate to Americans have changed as the result of the counter culture movements in the past, uh, you know, since the sixties, um, we had Terry Adams on um, talking about Woodstock because it was the 50th anniversary of that. Right. And we also did have Dr. Simpson on because it was the 50th anniversary of the moon landing, right? That's right. That was interesting. And I, I've listened to that show. I'm just, I'm being very honest here. I've listened to that show like three times because of just out of interest because it was so interesting to me. Um, I would recommend that you guys go. We have a legacy series that we have created on our website 
that's talking about some in, uh, of the things that we're discussing today. And Dr. Simpson launched the first, helped us launch the first um, installment of that of that series. And then we have Terry, and now we're following it up with this one. But there was something else that happened. We talked about Woodstock, and we talked about how it was peace, love, and happiness. Mm. But Mark, help us segue to that next moment and that next sort of uh, movement that was beginning. Well, 50 years ago, everything was going beautifully. You know, uh, we had in July a, a moon. We uh, landed on the moon, had a moonwalk. Everything was working so well. Two weeks later or something like that, we had Woodstock, which was a massive humanity on a on a farm that should have been a disaster, but it actually ended up perfect, you know, in in uh, harmony and you know, just love, peace, everything that you could imagine with it. That counterculture movement really gained foot. Everybody said it's a real deal. This is really how things can be. And and, and you know, just sorry to interject, yeah, but please. only one there was a fatality. Yeah, but was it was unrelated to, to you know any type of fight or anything like that. He was ran over by a tractor. Yeah, I there think. was an accident. There may yeah. have been a drug overdose. I'm not. But really there, sure, but, but it but wasn't like uh, like all all was falling apart. It was, no, no, it was perfect. It was really right. as as Trump would say, perfect. Yeah. It was just a perfect. And it was huge. And it was huge. Yeah. <laughs> it was definitely huge. <laughs> big, bigly. Yeah, it was bigly. <laughs> but but they tried to duplicate it. In the West, and uh-huh. there was a lot of festivals going around all over the all over the place, uh-huh. big ev- attended events. But in Altamont uh, Festival, that was in California, um, was the mark of the changing of the guards uh, with the counterculture movement because it ended in such hostility uh-huh. and violence and everything. And that's kind of what we were wanting to talk about today with uh, Dr. Simpson and get his views on the counterculture. What happened to it? What happened to those wonderful '69? You know ideals now before you even comment on that i'd like to set it up this way and i'll start i'll start first with dr simpson uh, mike um when you look back on 19 the 1960s and all the things that occurred and then it culminated with you know 69 was a pretty big year in a lot of ways um and i don't know were you like in junior high school oh we were younger than that were you like middle school we were eight we were eight or nine right so we were we were barely barely in elementary school (laughs) okay so so looking back on it the way you guys look back on it is more of a in a historical frame than it is for somebody who was maybe past puberty (laughs) if you will Mm -hmm. so i think there might be you know, that person who, like, for instance, my mom was a senior in high school in 1969. So she was experiencing that stuff firsthand. Her experience might be different than ours. Whereas, um, you know, someone who actually, I mean, she didn't go to Woodstock or anything like that, but you guys understood how it worked. What I was going to ask you first, uh, Mike was share just what, what in the seventies, as you started to become older, what did those events mean to you as you looked back on them? Mm-hmm. Like the the whole Woodstock movement, was it something that you thought of? Did you listen to that kind of music? Did it affect your mindset at all? Yeah, I, I, so definitely. I mean, one of the experiences we had that you know we just don't have anymore is we had four television stations, right? We had four channels. We all watched the nightly news. I'm mm-hmm. uh, sure Mark can remember this. You'd see the body count would be announced oh, yeah. from Vietnam War. It wow. would be announced on, you know, Walter Cronkite would tell you how many people got killed that day in the Vietnam War. Mm. And so when you went to school the next day, you know, we, we all had the same information. We didn't watch our particular brand of news. We all watched the same news. Four stations. You right, pick one right, of them. Yeah, right. exactly. And, and, you know, and 95% of the people watched Walter Cronkite. So right. we all watched Uncle Walt. Right, right. right. And so we, we lived a common 
social experience then that we don't do now, right? We all have a different experience. You come to work with all these different, you know, sort of viewpoints and things like that. Back then, at least we started with the same facts. And, you know, you were talking about 1969, but, you know, you might remember 1968 was a pretty turbulent year too, right? I mean, I mean, you know, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. Bobby Kennedy Bobby was Kennedy. assassinated. You know, we had the election. Um, you know, there was a lot of stuff that had already led up to that. The Watts riots, for example, and things like that. Mm. So it just seemed like there was something big on the news, really big on the news all the time. Uh-huh. Now you talked about the 70s, so we go in the 70s. The Vietnam War is still going on. And, of course, the Vietnam War and the counterculture were intimately linked. And, um, Mark, I don't know if you remember this, but I remember watching the draft lottery on TV. Oh, absolutely. And I had a brother that was very close. But very close. Yeah, Ted, Ted was that age, right? right. And, and we were sitting there, you know, we, we started to get to be toward teenagers about the time the Vietnam War ended. And we were watching that um, draft lottery with a different sort of mindset, you right. know, right. That, that, hey, that, that could be us. That, that could be us. So when you're watching that draft in 1970, what was it? 71 or two. So like you that. guys were way too young for that. But mm. when that draft was happening, was it people you knew that got drafted or was it, oh, was it, it just it, geographic? Was in, it was in everyone's community. There every, was no yeah. one. Every community had it. And every community had injuries. You know, uh, we, I mean, there were gold, you know, blue star, yeah. gold star parents, you know, up and down your street. Which means yeah. that people, yeah. So, have so had it's blue, who's, right? So, yeah. blue star just means somebody serving, right? And a gold star. So, I think how's that go? Silver star is is a injured, and gold star is is you lost a loved one. Right. Yeah, that that is one of the things I think that the counterculture was maybe trying um, in their mind. I think back in if you look back a couple of years because it was ramping up. I mean, Vietnam was was already in high effect, right? But um, you know, I think that the counterculture that that showed up in New York was really wanting the violence to stop, whether that violence may or may not have been related to a war that had anything to do with anything. But they, in their mind, they're wanting the violence to stop. Right. And when, yeah. And, and when we when we come back on from the other side of the break, let's let's start with what what happened with these kids and, and the dif- distance between World War Two and Vietnam War. Yeah, because I don't know if we're going to be able to explain to what happened to these kids. <laughs> well, we can talk a little bit about it. Because there's still I, I can stuff. set the, the tune. Yeah, you know, it's, it's crazy because our kids these days have a lot of the same attributes. I don't think that each um, generation necessarily changes a lot because we all still have entitlements and we still have some of the same things. And we it's can true. talk about generations too. But guys, stick around with us. We're talking with Dr. Simpson. Uh, we'll be right back after these messages. Hour with Kevin Ray continues, helping you understand what's really going on out there and what to do about it. Again, Kevin Ray. You cannot be born after 1995 and process the significance of September the 11th, 2001, in the way those born before 1995 do. End of story. Your brain's too young. You can't put it in a, a, religio- a religious, cultural, geographic. You can't put it in any context. So I have to walk up on there and correct them and say, look, if 9-11 has always been history to you. 
That's Jason Dorsey, and he's actually an interesting ta- speaker. And he's talking there. He's doing a TED talk about generations, and he was making the point of when it is that that Gen Z and and that millennial uh, begins to sort of separate, and when it is that they place the marker down. Because what his point, although I think it's a valid one, um, if you knew something, the, the generation changes is when the thing that defines your generation either starts or begins. So what he, he was talking about, for instance, my kids will never know a day where when you talk to somebody on their, on your cell phone, you're not also watching them on, on the cell phone. Like they're, they're going to think that that was the way it always was because that's the way that it always was since they've been alive. And so if you're born in 1995, that's when he suggests that the Gen Z started was because you, at six years old, you just don't have the ability to, to connect directly with 9-11 the way that we did, you know. Right. I think it's an interesting concept, which brings me back to the 1969 events and so forth. You guys were eight years old, so, uh, you know, I think that definitely it affected you differently than it would a six-year-old. And, and I would add that, um, you know, back then at, at my age with my generation, I couldn't connect to Pearl Harbor. Uh, yeah, you know, this was when you were talking about this, I was actually thinking – when I think about the 1950s and I think about World War II, it's like I think about them in black and white. That's mm. right. Yeah. You know, it's yeah, like it's, it's just a weird thing, right? It's like in things it like, wasn't in black and white. Yeah, apparently, <laughs> it wasn't. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've come to I've come to learn they had color. Yes. <laughs> And it's because yeah. of the documentaries that yeah. you've seen. And, and, you know, when you started really seeing the first yeah. uh, color coming into television, it's when my mind equated it. Okay, so that's when things became yeah. colorful. But there was nothing colorful about that uh, event that they tried to have in California. And that was how long after the Woodstock Festival? It was within a year, right? Well, yeah, it was December. Yeah, yeah December 6th, I think, was the festival, Altamont yeah. in California when violence struck mm-hmm. and it was kind of the signaling of the end of the counterculture movement by some historians. Now, now in terms of the I guess the list of people that were going to be coming was remember we talked about Woodstock and we talked about that probably they weren't the biggest names in music, certainly. So this festival had the Grateful Dead on the ticket, potentially. It was, you know. Jeff- Jefferson Airplane, Santana. Right. I mean, you know, so. Crosby, so Stills, Nash. Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. And Young. So Young was still with them at the time. So, so, so you know, it was it was almost like it was trying to catch. It was. It was, it catch, was there was a movement con- continuing. Yeah, it was considered the Woodstock of the West mm-hmm. at, at the time. But it did not end at all. Like the. So the do you Woodstock. think that the CIA was a part of the Hell's Angels? <laughs> I think Hell's Angels were the part of their own. Well, just for the listeners, I'm kidding, by the way. Um, so don't write into the blog. If you do, it's mark.griffith <laughs> at MIJ. But in all seriousness, we were listening to a clip where Jerry Garcia, who was in the Grateful Dead, and apparently they were at an airport and they were arriving and somebody was telling them what had happened, which was violence had broke out and so forth. And, and it was kind of like, he was like, bummer, man. And he's like, who's doing all of this? And he says the hell's angels, right. you know? And, um, was that who purportedly, was that the people who was, who were going so in? So they were doing, in charge of security. They're security. Yeah. Oh, so, okay. so like the hog, uh, uh, Hog Farm was mm-hmm. the security for Woodstock yeah. in, in 69 in, in August. Mm-hmm. So, and it worked out perfectly. 
everybody loved one another, respected one another, and went on. Right. So they thought, well, we'll have Hell's Angels instead of a, a Sounds police. like a smart. It's a great <laughs> idea. <laughs> what, what could go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> now, in, in defense, I mean, I don't know the history of the Hell's Angels, but I don't think that the first thing that people think of when they think of the Hell's Angels as, be, as being a terrorist organization, right? No, I mean, not, not at all. Not. But at the same time, um, they they're could, just tough guys. They're tough guys, <laughs> and they weren't going to have any of that. But I, I wanted to come back to something that uh, that Mike said. Actually, both of you sort of said it, which was, um, and I think it was more of what you had said in the seventies, because you you had your brother Ted, who you know yes. was almost at the age, but yeah. he he had no chance of being drafted. Or no, no, he he was he up did. for it. He was up for it when they suspended it. So okay, so here's my question now: people of this current um, generation, whether that be Gen Z, millennial, baby boomer, or, or, or Gen X, whoever is alive basically mm-hmm. today, the people that are in the, those generations that you just described about Ted, um, my generation and Gen Z, um, they don't understand the fear associated with stuff like that. You know, like a draft, for instance. Now, you guys were too young, right? But that's that's huge because that's that means that you have a thirty percent chance of dying or something like that. We were, you know, we were we were at the age where we could start to see right the, yeah. the possibility of being drafted, and we knew we knew people that had died right in Vietnam, and you, you felt know? the anxiety in the household. Right. I mean, you, you know, know, the mother was, uh, you know, you heard the conversations around the dinner table. Right. Mm-hmm. My father was World War Two. He understood war. And I mean, that was just in the 70s, which is just after that. Um, that's when things were, were obviously not ramping down. Um, and when did when did uh, Vietnam end? Y'all would it was know. 74, right? 74. I think it was 74, officially 74. Yeah. And, and I think you've mentioned this off air, I think, about Walter Cronkite. But anyway, where he's announcing, you know, every day they're talking about how many people died that you, day. You got the body count. Every night on the nightly news, you would get the body count, right? Yeah. And then at the time, Dan Rather was um, a war correspondent in mm-hmm. Vietnam. So you would get an embedded report from Dan Rather. Mm-hmm. And, you know, wow. and, they, and he, would be, he would be in combat gear, right? And there would be, there would be shooting going on. Yeah. Plus, it was him. in the in the media uh, in the Brian media. Williams was there too, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Um, no, it, that was a joke. Brian Williams, <laughs> don't you remember Brian Williams? He oh, said yeah, that yeah, he, Brian, he said he was at every. I event. just thought this was some <laughs> random guy you knew. <laughs> <laughs> I do remember, but, but it was in Sorry. magazines also. Yeah. Well, I mean, mm-hmm. horrible pictures in magazines because mm-hmm. I, you know, as any boy, there there were pictures in the um, mm-hmm. Time Time magazine right. would have terrible photos. Well, and then you would like you would hit, like you remember the Malay massacre. Yes. You know, so you'd hear these things about these like horrible atrocities. And then the picture was the picture in Look magazine of the, of the little Vietnamese girl. Oh, yeah. Running yeah. down naked. Running down. Yeah. And you're, you're just like, you, you're, you know, you see that when you're eight years old and you yeah. know that's really happening somewhere. That really affects you. It's so changing. on January 2nd, 1971, <laughs> the ban on cigarette advertising on US TV and radio took effect. Yeah. So they didn't. I mean, the war was in full effect. Right. But they were concerned but, about but smoking. They were concerned about smoking. <laughs> so what kind of counterculture yeah, uh, would allow that? Yeah, that's good Kevin. I'm serious. That's good. That doesn't make sense to me. Because that's kind of what we were doing, the counter... Well, I say we. I mean, the people who were in the counterculture. I mean, do as you want. As it feels good, do it. If, if, if it's not, you know, I guess your definition of immoral <laughs> would be different for different people. But mm-hmm. basically... The counterculture, you mentioned it, I think, off air as well. I think it was when we were just starting. 
it was it was these these moments these these certain bars that were hit it was like okay we're going to we're going to slowly start taking away some of the restrictions on this or that right. can you can you guys think of examples of that of of restrictions that were released well so you know we talked about it a little bit off air too right yeah. what were the ingredients that allowed this to happen yeah so you had big generation so you had lots of young people at the same time and then it was the first time people were actually affluent enough had enough money to care about things other than just uh, yeah. putting food on the table, right? Mm-hmm. So then they got to start to think about things they couldn't think about before. Another thing is birth control was widely available. Oh. So people started to think about sex completely mm-hmm. differently than it had been thought about before. Mm-hmm. Um, Except you know, for the, the Catholics. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I have some Catholics the, in, in my neighborhood. The, the cafeteria Catholics were still okay. <laughs> there you right? go. Yeah. Uh, this is not an endorsement right, for a mortgage. Right, right. I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, and so then, and then, you know, um, drug industry had taken off. Rec- mm-hmm. Some drugs became recreational drugs. Mm. Right? So you had, you had this sort of mixture of things. Marijuana was not legal, though. It, it wasn't anywhere. Yeah, know, at the time. it is now. Right, yeah. So in there many are, There states. are places now, yeah. Not yeah. federally, but still. So so not to get too far ahead of myself, but mm-hmm. why we're talking about this, because we talked mm-hmm. about what's the counterculture today, and we only have a minute left in this segment, but we, we, we said, okay, well, gay marriage was one of them. One of the things that count, the, the counterculture helped to, I think, overcome that, because that was a long um, embedded yes, uh, process in American culture, that the family, they just, you know, it was husband and wife, you know, yeah, right. but there was a count, there was a counterculture in this. In, and I don't mean that in a negative way. I'm just saying that's kind of what happened where it's like, we're going to get more information out there. We're going to get more people into what it is that, you know, we feel is what is right about this particular issue. And they got it done. You know, they got the Supreme court. Ultimately they won the day. So only 30 seconds, but think about that. When we get back from this this next break, let's talk about other things that are happening counterculture-wise. Um, some might argue that the impeachment inquiry is, is a counterculture. So, so I'm going to argue with you that you can't have counterculture today the way you could in the past because culture is so fragmented now. Oh, it used to be more okay. monolithic. That's very oh, deep. That, yeah. Yeah. That's very deep. We're going to continue this conversation right after these messages. Dr. Mike Simpsons, Mark Griffith, and Kevin Ray. We'll be right back. Housing Hour with Kevin Ray continues, helping you understand what's really going on out there and what to do about it. Again, Kevin Ray. Welcome back into the Housing Hour again. This is Kevin Ray. Thank you guys for joining us and for being a part of our show. You can go to thehousinghour.com, learn more, and also go to our sponsor's website, migonline.com. We'd love for you to go check out a little bit more information about MIG, uh, serving Tennessee in the Southeast since 1989. Um, and the housing hour has got a treasure trove of information, Mark. Treasure trove, and that's our 30-year anniversary at Mortgage Investors Group. That's right. Unbelievable. And it's incredible that you've been there since 1994. That's right. Which is a pretty big uh, amount of time since Heath Schuller came in second in the Heisman. <laughs> right? That's what I always remember. Speaking of years. Tennessee athletics, um, I was going to ask you guys, and this is going in the same vein of what you just said a moment ago, which was, you were going to make the argument of why there there isn't counterculture, um, and I'll let you go there and explain. Because I mean, now that we talked off air, I, I, I see where you're going with that. But my thought is about back when Greg Schiano was 
announced, right? Mm-hmm. It's almost, and this is at the University of Tennessee. Greg Schiano was the uh, defensive coordinator, at Ohio State. He had previously been the head coach down in uh, Tampa. He had then also previously been the head coach at Rutgers, where he has now taken a new job there. And he was floated out there on Twitter as being hired, right? So there's this thing in Knoxville and Tennessee and Tennessee ball, you know, fans is called Vol Twitter. You guys have heard of this, right? It, I haven't. No. Okay, yep. interesting. I have now. Now you have. <laughs> so there's a thing called Vol Twitter. That's what it's called. Vol Twitter takes the takes really responsibility uh, for moving the needle there because of the amount of phone calls and the tweets and the emails. And I mean, I was a part of it. I'll be honest. I had talking points that I sent out to everybody on why it is that we didn't want to hire Greg Schiano. It had nothing to do with Sandusky, had nothing to do with Penn State. It had to do with his record at Rutgers. It had to do with his record at Tampa Bay. It had to do with his um, defensive record at Ohio State and also anecdotal evidence from his players and coaches at Tampa Bay. So I had a whole talking point because I knew where the national media was trying to take it. My point is that I felt like that was a counterculture within a culture, almost like a subculture, a subculture of it. So talk to me about, first of all, do you agree that the, that Tennessee fans affected that hire? Because I think that's pretty big. It was a university's decision and they let the fan base sort of say no. So, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's an obvious example. But you also kind of make my point, right? So my my they yeah. these people were able to organize and find each other because of the way the internet connects people, and you can find people who, th- no matter what you think, you can easily find other people that think that way online, mm-hmm. right? And when the counterculture we're talking about in the '60s occurred, no such thing existed, and so it was really quite a big deal for such a big group of people to splinter off of main culture and have a completely different culture. But but weren't there uh, locations where these people grouped together? Well, sure. Hyper. I mean, San Francisco, I mean, San Francisco, Francisco Asbury, and, and things like Asbury, that. Yeah. And, and then, of course— Isn't that would, what kind of spurred you would, it? It you was their own little right, social you media. Would, you would see that on TV, and then people who would leave, you know, leave their home in Knoxville— That's would, right you know, would go out there and they would live in that culture. And, uh, you know, there was, there were um, protests and things at the University of Tennessee, right? So, I mean, it, it but you see, know. But see, so, so Kevin, uh, this is what I don't, I, you know, I never could figure out. How did World War II, these folks who survived the Great Depression, mm-hmm. went through to you know, survive this, you know, these mad people overseas, you know, style, um, all, all of it. Hitler and all of them. Stalin was on our side. Well, I, mean, Stalin, <laughs> I, know, I meant Mussolini. Mussolini. Yeah, Mussolini. So how did how did uh, we go from there hmm. to uh, this this counterculture? Why didn't they adopt the same values as the parents? Well, what when happened? when when has any generation ever adopted the same values as the parents when they were young? I think, I think your kids yeah. have adopted your values. That's what they tell them. But that's that's their story. And their well, story. well, I, I think that well, partly I think that the the values that one has may differ very, very, very much from their parents. The Arab mm-hmm. Springs comes to mind, for instance, right? Mm-hmm. So you had parents who. Right were oppressors in their minds Mm -hmm. and maybe it wasn't their parent or maybe it was their parent. It doesn't matter. But 
once these kids got on Facebook and they got on Twitter and they started to hear these other opinions, well, I mean, part of the Arab Spring story has to do with social media, right? But, 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 you know, so Mark brings up a good point. Okay, so in this was, I think most people think that the baby boomers was the first generation to really break from the way their parents had been. Uh-huh. And so if you think about that, well, why did that happen? Well, women joined the workforce in World War II. That's right. The birth of latchkey kids. The birth of subdivisions. You didn't live on the family farm anymore. You, you, know, you had to you, come in the right, city. Right. And uh-huh. so, uh, and then it was a large generation. So they got a lot of their sort of ideas and ideals, I should say, and what it was they were going to think by their interactions with each other. Uh-huh. And so it grew out of that. Right? And those interactions with each other led them from to a different place than where their parents had been. Yeah. You know, their parent their parents for the most part, you know, so the US used to be majority rural. Uh-huh. And around about this time it became majority urban. Yeah. Right. You know, so you these things play out. These things play out in the way that people think and and act. And the counterculture guy that was leading the charge in my mm. mind was that Pete Seeger back in the 50s. Folk, folk singer, yeah. Folk singer yep. who started leading this and start and wrote a song about tiny little boxes. Yep. It was you know about these little houses from post World War II, everybody living in the same thing. Right. And the kids mm-hmm kind of resented everybody living in the same thing looking the same way everybody mm-hmm. was doing the same thing right right yeah. right yeah, wow that's an interesting thought but i was and i want to go there with that thought but i did want to come back to a thought that you had mm-hmm. and it had to do with if you think about this new way of doing things let's talk about um the baby boomers let's talk about let's say the people that began to live in subdivisions. They began to do things the way that they were doing them. You have to really go back to the 20s when when it was that their parents were born, right? Mm-hmm. And when their parents were born, um, the country looked a lot different. You know, it, it was a, a completely different place. They, their parents were beginning to see the Great Depression take root. And in the 29, in fact, that was when the world changed in that mm-hmm. mo- in those moments. And what came from that was this this newfound thought of what, enterprise was, what commerce was, but there was a lot of trepidation. And I think a lot of skepticism of what, what created the great depression. So, I mean, it was almost as if history was repeating itself in many ways, but what values were being taught to the, you, you know, you guys to prevent the great depression from coming. So, you know, I, I've, uh, I've shared this a few times. Mark may have heard me say this before. And all of our friends, their parents grew up in the Great Depression. And you get to know people's parents. And, and I noticed that, that people grew up in the Great Depression. It had two opposite effects. Some people, it made them completely generous, uh. right? It, it was just like, hey, I'd live through hardship. I don't want anybody else. I want my kids to have it better than me. Uh. I want everybody to have it better than I had it. And then there was another smaller group of people that made them kind of bitter, Mm. made them kind of scared. It made them sort of like, okay, I've always got to kind of keep my Hold hands my, around and hoard, right. you know, hoard do stuff. I, do, I, like do I see a political parties being formed here? Oh, um, <laughs> I don't, I don't actually think, no, no, I don't, I don't think this was a political party thing at all. I, I think yeah. it's just, you know, f- you live through something as traumatic as the great depression and it uh-huh. affects you uh-huh. and how it affects you kind of depends on, 
probably what you experienced. What the consequences for you were. Would you say, though, not uh, for being political, but conservative ideals as a result of not having something, lost everything, so you're a little bit more conservative about how you live? Well, it it depends on what you mean by the term conservative. It depends on your vision of the word is, is. (laughs) But but if what what you mean by conservative is risk-averse. Yes, then, then mean. obviously, right now, what what you mean if you what you mean by conservative is a conservative political, um, you know, but which, which in a lot of ways isn't risk averse at all, right? Yeah, right. So I mean, it it doesn't mean the same thing it used to mean. It's it's not it's not uh, a Buckley's conservatism. Right. Yeah, anymore. I mean, no, you know, it, because no. really, when you look back, I mean, from a political standpoint, p- politics really started to take shape in the 70s. And, and I mean, don't get me wrong. I know that it, there was politics before that. 60s, definitely. But the 60s and the 70s, you had the first impeachment of a president, right? And and things became very polarized. <laughs> yeah, but 1860s, you had yeah, the first. Well, that's, <laughs> true. that's true. But that one ended in a duel, didn't it? <laughs> no, 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 no. He, he, yeah. he, he actually, you're thinking about Aaron Burr, so you're, you're going Well, back. that was Alexander Hamilton. But oh, I was thinking, yeah. if I'm not mistaken, there was a duel between a president I may be wrong. You guys are better history than me. <laughs> but if I'm right, I'm going to tell you guys. For sure. <laughs> you're going to rub it in. But, and, but if, it, and if you're wrong, we'll never hear about it no, again. That's so true. <laughs> but my, what I'd like to talk about in this last segment sure. is to tackle a little bit more about back whenever the 70s hit, things started to change. The counterculture maybe went away in some ways, but maybe it was their methods of how they went about doing what they did. So that's what I want to talk about because obviously our culture has played a big part in what it is that we do and how we do it. This is this this is that song. How did you find that, Mr. Producer? That's amazing. But we're going to continue this conversation right here on the Housing Hour. This is Peter Seeger, Little Boxes. To the university, and they all got put in boxes, little boxes, all the same. The Housing Hour with Kevin Ray continues, helping you understand what's really going on out there and what to do about it. Again, Kevin Ray. I have asked for this radio and television time tonight for the purpose of announcing that we today have concluded an agreement to end the war and bring peace with honor in Vietnam and in Southeast Asia. The following statement is being issued at this moment in Washington and Hanoi. At 12.30 Paris time today, January 23, 1973, the agreement on ending the war and restoring peace in Vietnam was initialed by Dr. Henry Kissinger on behalf of the United States and Special Advisor Lee Duc Tho on behalf of the Democratic Republic of Vietnam. The agreement will be formally signed by the parties participating in the... So the war comes to a conclusion in Vietnam, and the counterculture works, right? So at least partially, right? Right. You know, so that that was one of the things that... You know, you think about the things, what were the big causes? There were social justice causes like civil rights. There was anti-war rhetoric Mm -hmm. in anti-war sentiment. And so, yeah, in, in some ways, the signing of the, the Civil Rights Act in the 60s and the uh-huh. end of the Vietnam War was was um, somewhat fulfilling what the counterculture was after. Would there have been a counterculture without the Vietnam War? Well, that's an awfully hard question to answer, isn't it? 
That's why we. That's why you're here. That's why you're yeah. here. Yeah. That's right. You got paid oh, for this, well, buddy. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. You know. So and by the way, we so, have bonus so my bank, coverage. By my calculation, there was a seventy nine point six percent chance it would have happened anyway, yeah. Mark. Yeah. Well, the, back to why it happened. What was the reason that Vietnam happened? Because we thought that there was injustices happening, right, in another part of the world. I mean, that we wouldn't have gotten involved. That's what the narrative was, right? Well, I mean, actually, this was this was a proxy war. Uh-huh. I mean, it was it was a war between the U.S. and Russia, fought by proxies, uh-huh. and and Korea was a proxy war. So it was just too big a risk for the U.S. and the Russians to actually go to. War. I right. shouldn't say Russians. I should say the Soviet Union. Yeah, to go to war. But they wanted to fight over basically on, on who was going to control the world. Mm-hmm. So they did it through proxies. Yeah, so kind of a yeah. small thing to fight for, right. you know. Right. Um, although it was, was not classified as a world war, certainly, you know, we don't, people don't talk about this, but we're the ones who armed Osama bin Laden and oh, trained him sure. to fight against Russia in Afghanistan. Did, did you see Ken's, Ken Burns' uh, series on, on Vietnam? Um, no, yes, but I, I need did. to. So you I should. Did. So so you may know where I'm going with this, right? And do you know that Ho Chi Minh approached the U.S. in the 20s, 30s, mm. and the U.S. were big supporters. I mean, they wanted to support Ho, Ho Chi Minh was was um, really trying to be on America's side. Right. We should have saved it this was, for no. the bonus cover. This may be controversial. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, no. no this. I mean, no, this, yeah, is, this yeah. is fact. It's it's so basically, it was only when when he he just sort of got. Um, shunned or, mm-hmm. or sort of the U.S. kind of turned their back on him. I don't think they took him legitimately. Well, why th- they turned? Yeah, so I'm trying to remember the actual details, but there were there were apparently some senators, some some people in the U.S. government that were trying very hard mm-hmm. to get him, you know, audiences on up the chain. Aaron Burr was working at well, Aaron it. Burr, I'm yeah, just yeah. And then then the duel and he <laughs> lost focus, but you know, I'm just kidding. Um, well, but, it, the whole idea of a proxy war, people mm-hmm. just like sitting in math class or science mm-hmm. class or history class. I don't know that that's exactly how they teach it, although it's oh, no. true. But what they taught in school was much different sometimes. And, and I think that's really part of the, the reason people push back is because, you know, as the government or whatever the official stance is, sometimes it's just so outrageously wrong that people push back. They push back. And the counterculture movement to the Vietnam War was a pushback to the established way that we uh-huh. administrated the world. Uh-huh. And, and really that had a lasting effect because don't you feel – that um, our involvement in future wars uh, changed in the mindset of politicians because of the counterculture? I, I think in a lot of ways, right? Uh, you know, first of all, it's like, you, you know, the generation before them had fought World War II. Everybody understood why they fought World War II. That's right. I don't think, I think if you'd gone out on the streets and just asked people randomly why we were fighting in Vietnam, you wouldn't yeah. have gotten clear answers. It would have been very fuzzy, right? So people didn't know mm. why their children were going to die. Yeah, right. it was just Char- Charlie. Right. This whole idea that Charlie was right. the bad guy. So, so, so the reasons were fuzzy, and then it was a limited, um, a limited war. Right, you, you're at war, but there's certain things you didn't do. Right, we're there's not going to use this rules. Right, right, exactly. So it was a limited engagement war. Right. So well, I never really, you know, when mm-hmm. I think about Vietnam and mm-hmm. and there was this epiphany whenever I don't remember how old I was, but you know I was you know kind of pumped up. I was like, well, we've never lost a war. And technically you could argue we didn't lose Vietnam. I'm not here to argue that at all. Okay. Just tell me, I'm telling you right now it's Mark.Griffith. But all I do know is, is that it wasn't 
clear to me when I sat through history class, when I sat through these, that it was, it depended on if it was Bob Simon in Oak Ridge, you might've heard one story who was a history teacher. If you heard from another history teacher, it was very political in how they told you what actually happened, right? The fact is we didn't technically win or lose, right? So the draw, but, but there's certain things that you can, you can say and you can't debate, right? Right. So if you go back to Korea, there is a North and a South Korea. There's not a unified Korea unified under a democratic government. That's the South. Mm-hmm. So if you think that's a draw, that's a draw. That right. Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. There is no South Vietnam anymore. Mm-hmm. There's only Vietnam. Mm. And the North runs the North. What was North Vietnam during the war runs that entire country. So that now, means victory. That certainly doesn't mean draw. <laughs> yeah. Take it for what it means. Yeah. But there is no South Vietnam democratic. Henry South Vietnam. Kissinger. And I don't want to get too much. Henry Kissinger helped to negotiate that deal. Right. He signed it in Paris or wherever he was. And. Well, you know, well, yeah, the, yeah. Well, I mean, the U.S. withdrew, and then the South Vietnamese just collapsed. All right, right. exactly. But I um, just, I just think, wow, how things are different. I mean, whatever happened, happened. It could be a whole other show. But now, you know, you've got communication at the at your fingertips, and when that type of thing happens overseas, it's not as easy as it was or it is today. You know, and 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 that's how I think you're able to. You know, you asked the question, if it was today, would Vietnam have happened or whatever you said? I can't remember how yeah, you said it. Yeah, I mean. If would, it, the, would the counterculture have happened? Yeah, would the, count- yeah, yeah, would the counterculture have happened? I just, yeah. I, I just think that I think that it would have happened today, but I think, like what you said earlier, I think there would have been more alignment with whatever belief that that one segment had. And if they had a big enough bullhorn, you could have like a Tiananmen Square situation happen where you've got a big, massive group of people that have to either be shut up or negotiated with, right? Right. I mean, that was that was what really. I don't happened. even know what happened exactly at right. Tiananmen Square. I just yeah. know that it was not yeah. good. <laughs> but but but, what, but yeah. see, that was that was a case though of of a government basically just saying in Tiananmen Square is we're just going to shut this down. We don't mm-hmm. care what the consequences are. We're going to shut this down. Now we had some of that happen. In this we did uh, in the seventies. I was reading right. just now about it. Well, I mean, I I don't know if you. You know, even you even know Kent about State? Kent State, right? Yeah. Mm, oh, absolutely. Right. So there were there was were the first mass shooting. So uh, so national yeah. so National Guard troops were sent to college campuses, and you know, basically, Shut sometimes shooting at their, you know, people of their own age. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, so, but but you know, there was a horrible backlash here, right? We we wouldn't put up with the National Guards going to our college campuses right. and, and shooting people, right? right. And uh, but but in Tiananmen Square, it was different. The government said, if, "If we have to shoot people, we'll shoot people," and there was nobody to say we're not going to put up with it. I was trying to go to your mm-hmm. your website, Wikipedia, to see if I could find out the number of casualties. But the fact was, and I'm I'm joking about that. But the fact was that, like you said, people were trying to rise up, mm-hmm. and the government said, "That's not how we roll. Yeah. That we're 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 a communistic state. We, mm-hmm. we say what happens. We'll give you your cheese. We'll give you your stipend. Sit down." Mm-hmm. And until we tell you otherwise, then you can stand back up. America, that's what's so beautiful about this country. Whether you're red, white, blue, or green, it doesn't matter. You're going to get what it is that you deserve in terms of uh, life, liberty, and justice. I mean, you could define those things differently, but we sort of are, uh, you know, dealt a hand, and then we take with it what we can. I mean, that's why, I mean, this country has a lot of faults. Right, it's not perfect, but there's also a lot of beauty about how it is that our country set up. 
Do you still believe that, Mark? Oh, I absolutely believe that. Okay. No, do you still believe that, Mike? Of course I do. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. The thing I worry <laughs> most. Beautifully said, Kevin. The, yeah. the thing I worry most about is could we lose that? Yeah. Right? Could right. we? Could we get so um, sort of locked into we just want our side to win mm. that we, we we would be willing to let the other side be shut down? Okay. So Ooh, what that was gonna, deep. We got a minute mm. left in this segment. So mm. how bonus. about bonus? Yeah, we're going to go ahead and do a bonus section. Let's talk about that. Yeah, because we're going to have a bonus segment that's going to play after this. And so if you're listening to us either on radio or wherever, go to thehousinghour.com, and you can go locate on our post. It's going to be the bonus coverage. We're going to get raw and real, and it's going to be incredible. We're going to talk about things that we can't talk about on the air. Yeah. So please tune into that. But I tell you, it's been really great spending the time with you. Thank you so much, Dr. Simpson, Mike Simpson for coming in and being a part of this incredible discussion. Hey, it's always my pleasure. And like I told everybody, I'm the foremost expert on the counterculture in Mark's Rolodex. <laughs> and that's awesome because he's my my main source as well. And it has a lot to do with age, you know. Mm-hmm. It has a lot to do with age because you guys were right in the middle of it. Of course, you were only eight years old. Yeah. I, I but we had older, older siblings. Right. So, which really influenced us. Yeah. Well, I know that Mark influences me, so if that's a bad thing, I don't care because I just want to <laughs> I want to do everything I can. Well, thank you guys for joining us, and don't forget to come back to the Housing Hour next week. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next time right here on the Housing Hour. That's the Housing Hour with Kevin Ray for today. Join Kevin and his guests each week at this time to keep up with the why and why not you need to know, so come here to find out. Also check us out at thehousinghour.com. This show is presented by Mortgage Investors Group.